you know, I often joke that this book is sort of my my humble attempt at dealing with, you know, 2,000, two and a half thousand years of blindness in Western culture. I'm Joitha Gutta, and this is The Pulse. We've come a long way in understanding what blindness means. Throughout history, blindness has been revered and reviled. It has been the source of fear and fascination. Blind people themselves have been viewed either as pitiable or helpless, or if not that, then they've believed to be blessed with spectacular gifts or skill sets. Blindness is shaped by technology and accessible aids. Be it the invention of Braille, the development of the white cane, or accessible computer software, in fact, each technological evolution has shaped what blindness means. Beyond the myths, though, there are real blind people who live rich lives and thus reinvent blindness. Today, we discuss the cultural history of blindness. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joitha Gupta and I'm joining you today from the Accessible Media Studios in Toronto, which is subject to the Dish with One Spoon Treaty. We're talking about blindness today. Not just blindness as a disability or impairment or individual condition, but blindness as a cultural idea or phenomena that exists in all of our minds. We're talking about the myths, the stereotypes, and the perceptions of blindness and blind people. So I want to know from you in the comments down below what you feel some of the popular myths about blindness are that you've encountered, and whether you've done anything to either educate yourself about the myths or to get past them. You can always subscribe to this YouTube channel or as a podcast. The show is available to you in many formats. It's a good idea to subscribe just so you're notified of future videos. My guest today is Leona Gordon, who is a writer, performer, educator, and editor. She is the author of Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, which the New Yorker called a thought-provoking mixture of criticism, memoir, and advocacy. She has produced two plays, is a speaker and writer, and she teaches English literature and disability studies at New York, at New York University. Leona, hello and welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. I normally start the interview by asking what... Uh, draws you or what drew you to the the topic of blindness as your subject matter but you write fairly early in your book uh that blindness isn't just a subject it's a perspective what do you mean by that oh well thank you for asking that question um it it has so much to do with the idea that um blindness tends in our media and our cultural imagination to be kind of a plot device and so it makes it so that it's kind of very easy to dismiss, right? If it's a subject, it's something that you can kind of um, talk about and then get over and move on to, to something else. But um, I 
believe, and I, I actually didn't even come up with that uh, my, myself, um, there's a few of us that kind of subscribe to this idea that if blindness is understood to be perspective, then it's something that's going to inform everything that we do, um, but not completely, right? Just like being a woman or being a person of color is going to inform your uh, perspective on the world, um, not completely, but certainly in a in a in a way that's going to yeah change everything that you sort of uh, see about the world sorry i'm getting all flustered <laughs> <laughs> no that makes a lot of sense i wonder if for those of us who don't have a background in english literature if you could uh talk to us a little bit about the title of the book where that comes from and uh what it's meant to signify about some of the themes that you cover in the book Sure. So Their Plant Eyes is stolen from blind poet extraordinaire John Milton. Um, in his poem Paradise Lost, he wrote that as a blind person, he spent much of his life um, as a sighted person and lost his vision in his early 40s. And he, um, the poem is kind of famously about the, the fall of Adam and Eve, tempted by Satan the serpent. But there's a moment in which the narrator, who we kind of take to be John Milton himself, it calls himself out as a blind poet and kind of establishes himself as um, kind of in the lineage of, say, the, the blind bards old, like Homer. And so Their Plant Eyes is this moment at which he is moving from sort of the darkness of hell to the light of heaven, but he wants us to know that this is a metaphorical turn and that even though he is a blind poet, he's perfectly able to describe these events because they're not really seeable to, to the human eye. Um, and so he's suggesting that you plant the eyes inside, right? So for inner vision in order to see the truth of, uh, of the story that he's telling. It's an interesting... Um contradiction. I mean, on the one hand, uh, we often hear phrases like seeing is believing being bandied about. Uh, but on the other hand, there's almost a sense that being blind uh, gives you access to an inner vision, which is free from distraction, dare I say it. And so you're more able to access philosophy or thought or, um, you know, hence the blind bard that you're talking about. How do you reconcile that seeming contradiction? This is kind of the prevailing um, movement of this book, is that on the one hand, we have this, this mythological idea of the blind poet or prophet, even say like a Tiresias. And so you're absolutely right that we're sort of somehow connected with an inner truth. Um, but the problem is that when we have those kinds of myths, we're not really thinking about accessibility, you know, and one thing to think about is the fact that, you know, the, the blind bard is, is a wonderful idea, but it was also part of an oral culture. And so as soon as the poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey were written down, it kind of negates the importance of that orality of the, the poem and the possibility of a blind poet all the way really up until um, the, the, the days of Braille, when you could actually participate in in literacy. Now, 
Milton was an interesting case because, of course, he had this incredible education behind him, right, as a sighted person. It's kind of hard to imagine him being able to lay down every night and compose in his head the intricate lines of Paradise Lost had he not that amazing education, which he couldn't have gotten as a blind person, right? So I think we love these these ideas, and yet we don't really think about sort of the realities of of education until really the the 18th century. But even today, there's a lot of people that still are kind of assuming that, say, for example, my sighted partner writes for me, you know, or um, assumes that I don't work, you know, and things like that. So we have, on the other hand, these kind of practical barriers that seem insurmountable in the, in the minds of many sighted people, I think. As you said, blindness almost seems like it's a bit of a, a shortcut in, in a sense, where we pin all of these ideas about all these cultural notions on blindness. But, you know, your book doesn't actually start out talking about the Iliad or, or, or Odyssey. It actually starts out talking about your own experience as a young person, uh, where you realize you gradually see less and less and you're perplexed as to why you can't see the blackboard anymore. And you have this, you start to go to different appointments and meet with different doctors. What role does your personal narrative play in the book? Yeah, I've been going blind pretty much my entire life. I, I, I started out life with normal vision. And as you say, when I was about 10 years old, um, I couldn't read the writing on the blackboard, which was not a huge deal. My vision was probably, you know, 20, 30, 20, 40, something like that. But the doctors couldn't get it down to normal, and they were quite perplexed. So there was quite a number of years where we weren't really sure what was going on with my eyes. Um, from that moment up until now, um, and up until about maybe five years ago, I would say now I am a totally blind person, and I have really no more perception of of kind of the world out outside um i can't say that i don't see light because oddly enough uh, the way that my vision the way that my blindness presents is kind of full of light um so that's another sort of stereotype that you think that blind people live in darkness but that's actually not true for a lot of us um but the idea is that in the book i'm very interested in this kind of vast middle ground of, of blindness that is almost always incomplete. Um, there are very few people that were born with absolutely no sight. I mean, it's a really tiny percentage of blind people. Most blind people that you're going to uh, run into on the street probably have some level of vision. Um, maybe it's just light perception, or perhaps it's just central vision, or perhaps it's just peripheral vision. So it's really complex. There was kind of a nice um, uh, analogy between my incomplete vision and kind of trying to break down this dichotomy that you're either blind or sighted. Uh, Give us a general overview of the book. So there's obviously an aspect of the book, which is memoir, but you're also getting into uh, talking about literature, technology. It feels like the book covers a lot of ground. So can you give us a I guess yeah, I, I can call it a brief synopsis. Yes, well, you know, I often joke that this book is sort of my my humble attempt at dealing with you know two thousand two and a half thousand years of blindness in Western culture. Um, so I start with Homer just because those ideas and myths as we've been talking about 
seems so prevalent with us still. You know, you can't read, really read like a book of science fiction or fantasy without running into a blind character. Um, but I very swiftly move to um, what I think is a really important moment in kind of Western history where the the philosophy, say, of the Enlightenment led almost directly to the education of the blind and then therefore the the invention of Braille. So that's kind of the middle part of the book. And then from there, I kind of take chapters. So the chapters have a very essayistic feel to it. And we move up right to our modern day. So I take some key figures. I do, for example, spend a chapter on Helen Keller, but probably a different take than most people are used to. I'm, I'm thinking about her life performing in vaudeville and what that means to say be a blind actor or a blind spectacle, as I put it. Um, and then always making connections with today, with our present day. For example, the need for representation um, in our in our movies and our culture that are you know that are authentic, right? That you want to have an actual blind actor playing a blind person in a movie, or you would there's a chapter on being a blind writer and the idea that there are so many blind characters and novels, but there are very few blind novelists and trying to kind of unravel what that is about. So um, the later chapters kind of take a few key examples of how some of these longstanding ideas are still with us today in these different aspects, for example, writing or acting or science, being a blind scientist, for example, as well. Do you think part of the issue is that a lot of what is uh, written or known or discoursed about when it comes to blindness isn't really offered up for the most part by blind people themselves? That's not to say that blind people don't make contributions to the telling of uh, of our lived experience of blindness, but overwhelmingly, I feel as though it's sighted people who are making assumptions about blindness and assumptions about blind people, and that is what is informing, for the most part, the cultural perception of blindness. You have put your finger on the real issue. The, the problem is that our ideas of what blindness is have been constructed by sighted people. And it's a real problem because when we try and correct those really um, pervasive and what feel like almost insurmountable stereotypes, um, we kind of get shut down. Um, and I tell a lot of stories of that in different ways um, from, for example, my friend who's an opera singer, who's a blind opera singer, you know, not being able to, 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 to be on the stage, right? And to even represent, say, a blind character. So, for example, opera loves the idea of blindness, you know, just like novels do, but not having that kind of representation. And the biggest one is really in movies and in novels, of course. And so I talk about a friend of mine who just absolutely struggled to become a novelist, um, blatant um, ableism, blatant um, prejudices when she was meeting with agents who loved her writing and then found out that she was blind and just dropped her immediately. Um, and even now, after she's got you know 35 books under her belt in the romance genre, even now she tries to write a, what she feels is a realistic blind character and is still really struggling to get editors to believe that 
that she actually knows what she's talking about, about blindness, because these, these stereotypes and these images are so, um, yeah, so pervasive and, mm. and strong. And so entrenched. Yeah, so entrenched. That's the word I was looking for. It- so when, then, then what is the solution? Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about the memoir as a way to promote the voices of people with disabilities. And over the years of hosting this show, I've actually talked to a number of blind people, uh, specifically, who have written memoirs of, of their lived experience. And yet it feels as though, um, not to say that these weren't all excellent books and that they weren't all wonderful guests, um, but it almost felt like they were telling the same story. Blind person gets a diagnosis, feels overwhelmed, overcomes the odds, lives happily ever after. Do you feel that even when we use the memoir as a device to tell authentic stories about blindness, even there we're falling short of our potential because of cultural constraints on what kinds of stories about blindness are acceptable. That is exactly right. And of course, I love memoirs and I quote many of them, probably some of them are, were even guests on your show, but um, I, I incorporate the voices of many blind memoirs in my book. And when I first started talking to my agent about writing this book, I was very adamant. I said, I do not want to write a blind memoir. And that's not because I don't love them and think that they're wonderful and important, but I do feel like the mainstream reading public tends to want to just read maybe one blind memoir and then that kind of like, okay, now I know what blindness is, um, and puts it aside. And it also tends to kind of uphold a single blind individual as opposed to thinking about community. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately where, you know, what it seems like you were hinting at a little bit about the idea of inspiration porn, right? That one one individual kind of overcoming adversity is kind of this feel-good story that I think a lot of able-bodied people or non-disabled people feel like, okay, well, that made me feel better or that made me feel like, oh, wow, if that person can do that, then I should be, you know, not complaining about my life, right? It's kind of a very simplistic view of dealing with disability. And again, it's actually not really dealing with disability because all the systemic prejudices and, um, ableist uh, constructions of the built environment don't change. Um, So I think that there are two, there are a few problems with memoirs. And one is that this kind of idea that it's sort of this inspirational tale that you can close the book on and not have to deal with it anymore. The other problem I think is that blind people tend to not be allowed to tell anything other than their own story, right? So a lot of us want to write novels. We might want to write other kinds of writing. Certainly we need more blind journalists out there um, to kind of unravel some of these stereotypical stories. And yet we tend to be pushed towards writing this singular memoir as if that's the only thing we can talk about, that we wouldn't be able to have anything um, interesting or informative to say, you know, beyond ourselves, beyond our own story. In the book that you've written, um, I wanted to take a minute to ask you about the process of uh, narrating the or- the audiobook, which you do yourself. And in the opening of the audiobook, you, you, you reference the fact that people might hear clicking or they might hear uh, the screen reader that you use, and you try to make normal or render normal the fact that that's 
an, a way in which many blind people, myself included actually, deliver presentations and content, and it's just another way of reading. Tell me a little bit about your experience of, of recording the audiobook version of this book. I went into this telling the director that this is how I'm going to be reading, which is what I call the electronic Cyrano method, um, that I've got a little earbud in my ear, which we might have a, a moment to demonstrate in a moment. And I, with my screen reader reading in my ear, I kind of um, repeat, I suppose, the lines that the, um, the electronic screen reader is sort of whispering in my ear very passionless Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, and uh, so I told them, and they were understandably, I suppose, a little bit nervous about it. You know, how is this going to work? Um, and I, of course, needed to bring in my laptop. Usually when you go into the recording studio, I guess people use iPads and they kind of have it very sterile. You don't want to have any other sounds. Um, it, it's meant to be sort of as seamless and quiet as possible. And of course, here I have my my laptop that's going to do a little bit of worrying. Um, I had my earbud under the, under the headphones, um, but there was maybe still going to be a little bit of leakage from the, the earbud. So I wanted to let readers know that this was going to be the way that I was going to be reading, both to tell them that they might hear some sounds that they're not ordinar ordinarily hearing, but also to say, just as what you just said, that this is another way of reading. This is another way of accessing um, the printed word. And I wanted to really put out there the idea that, you know, sometimes there's this distinction between listening and reading. In fact, there's a convention when in, in audiobook production where if you have a passage where you say something like, dear reader, which I do quite a bit, they'll actually change it on the fly to be dear listener. And so I had a little conversation with my director saying, you know, I believe that listening is reading, you know, and um, I don't want to change this. I want to keep it dear reader. So I think a couple of like dear readers got left in because I was so nervous the first day. Um, but for the most part, I tried to unravel that that convention, um, because if you pay too much attention to that modality of reading, I, I think sometimes it's too easy to sort of value one over the other and um and obviously reading by ear has been just hugely important for me as a as an academic and as a writer i wanted to give you a minute to in fact read an excerpt from your book uh tell us a little bit about what you'll be reading and uh, uh take it away yeah absolutely so this is from the introductory chapter it's called seeing and not seeing and it just kind of lays out what I mean to do in this book. Um, and it speaks to quite a bit of what we've been talking about uh, in terms of my own uh, personal story relating to the, the larger issues of trying to break down these binary structures. So this is maybe the last paragraph of the first of the intro chapter. The arc of my illness has taken me through nearly every notch of the sight blindness spectrum. That spectrum, both metaphorically and literally, is what I want to reveal in these pages as a much more truthful and interesting alternative to the strict sight-blindness dichotomy. Blindness in reality is more often incomplete and spotty, degenerating and contingent. 
With the help of examples taken from my own life and the lives of others, as well as artistic, philosophical, and scientific representations of blindness, we can begin to unravel the symbols and ideas upholding the notion that one is either sighted or blind. I hope by the end of this book to show you, dear sighted and blind readers, how intimately connected are our histories, our stories, and how dependent we are on one another for human understanding. By tracing the complexities of metaphorical and literal blindness and sight, I also hope to demonstrate how flimsy are the barriers between literally blind and sighted people. Their plant eyes seeks to chip away at the pervasive ocular centrism of our culture, to open up a space for social justice that accepts sensorial difference, to celebrate the vast dappled regions between seeing and not seeing, blindness and sight, darkness and light. That's amazing. Leona, thank you very much. That was really well read and it's such a powerful passage. I really appreciate that you talked to us today about your book and some of your thoughts about blindness and, and cultural representations of blindness. Thanks so much for being on the program. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Leono Gordon is the author of Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. That's all the time we have for today. I hope you will leave your comments down below and don't forget to subscribe as well. You can always find us on Twitter at AMI Audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI if you'd like to comment. You can write to us at feedback at AMI.ca or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. And let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. Our videographer today has been Ted Cooper. Our technical producer is Marco Flalo. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. And I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Thanks for listening.